everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Right now, I'm excited to introduce my guest for today, Robert Wright. Robert is the New York Times bestselling author of The Evolution of God, Non-Zero, The Moral Animal, Three Scientists and Their Gods, and most recently, Why Buddhism is True. He's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the widely respected bloggingheads.tv and has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Time, Slate, and The New Republic. He has taught at the University of Pennsylvania and at Princeton University, where he also created the popular online course Buddhism and Modern Psychology. Thanks for chatting with me today, Robert. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with me, Scott. No, I'm really delighted to chat with you. I've read your book now twice in its entirety. Wow. One when you sent me the galley, and again in preparation for the interview. And I have to say, and maybe this is, you could connect this somehow to the principles of Buddhism or something, or non-attachment or distance or whatever. But the second time I read it, I saw things I had a different perspective on it. I still liked it. I had a different perspective in that some of the criticisms I had the first time I read it are much quieter now. Good. I like that. That's a good direction to head in. Maybe you should read it a third time and a fourth. I knew you were going to say that. And I don't just say that to appease you. I find that an interesting exercise for myself in the sense that, you know, I was like, oh, I see what, I really see what he's saying there. So even if, you know, I still have some like, things that I like I think we can add to the picture. I really like see what you're saying. So, let's talk about a bunch of this stuff. So, you start off with this idea of taking the red pill. You know, obviously linking it to the movie The Matrix and the idea that the only way to see the whole picture of reality is to see it for yourself. Now, how do you liken that to the process of meditation? Well, yeah, the idea in the matrix is that people discover that actually they've been living in a world of illusion. They're actually in these little pods and everything they thought they were living is really an hallucination. Now, I wouldn't say that Buddhism makes quite that claim, although there are some strands of Buddhist thought that take things about that far. But those are not really mainstream strands. What is central to Buddhism broadly is the idea that We don't by nature see the world clearly. 
and that that's what makes us suffer and that's what makes us make other people suffer. So a lot of reason to try to see the world more clearly, whether through meditation or whatever in this view. And I basically defend the view in the book that indeed we don't naturally see the world clearly. Indeed, that leads us to sometimes suffer. And it also leads us to behave badly sometimes and make other people suffer. And I trace this to the way natural selection designed the human brain. You know, our happiness was not high on natural selection's agenda, and neither was our always seeing the world clearly. I mean, the bottom line was traits that will get genes into the next generation are the traits that natural selection favors. And in those cases where suffering or delusion will help you get genes into the next generation, natural selection will favor those things. So that's really interesting. I mean, you have this quote here, our brains are designed to, among other things, delude us. And you earlier write, evolution blessed us with a basically accurate view of reality. So I was confused what you meant by with a basically accurate view, but you're saying it distorts us at the same time. How are those two things true at the same time? Well, I think for certain things, clear perception has coincided with genetic proliferation. Like, a wall is here or, you know, some boulder that I might trip over. Obviously, it's in my interest to see that clearly. Now, even in the realm of everyday perception, there are distortions that seem to be natural. So, for example, when a big object is hurtling toward us in the modern environment, it might be a car. We tend to overestimate how fast it is traveling. And that makes sense as something like if a wild animal is chasing you, you want to err on the side of caution, right? You want to think, you know, that if you're going to make a mistake, make it in the direction, in a direction that leads you to be safe, not in a direction that leads you to be eaten, right? So even in the realm of straightforward perception, it doesn't always make sense for the brain designed by natural selection to give us perfect clarity. And I would say that these departures from clarity get more pronounced in certain realms, such as thinking about ourselves and our own motivation, and what the self is. And of course, in Buddhism, this is a big claim about a whole area of illusion. Buddhists, I mean, in the strictest form, the claim is that the self doesn't exist, but certainly the idea is that we exaggerate the extent to which there's a kind of a CEO conscious self making all the decisions. So in that realm, I think I make the case that, you know, according to not just evolutionary psychology, but a lot of findings from just you know, garden variety psychology, there's reason to think that our conception of the self is confused in various ways. And so too, with our judgments we make about other people, I would say, that's a big area where it makes sense that natural selection would get us to judge people in ways that were expedient, in a sense, for our ancestors in terms of getting genes into the next generation. And so that's another area where a lot of skepticism of your kind of intuitive perception might be warranted. So I think, you know, you go through the world and, you know, there's something there where the tree is for sure. And that is a paved road I'm seeing and so on. That's what I meant by basically accurate. I got you. Uh, yeah. So, you know, in visual cognition, they distinguish between top-down processing and bottom-up processing. It seems like you're saying a lot of meditation is to get us more in touch with that bottom up before the top down distorts it in a way. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, actually. I mean, it seems to be the case that, you know, raw sensory input kind of gets processed from the get-go. I mean, even to create a three-dimensional view of the world, you have to impose certain assumptions on the data because, after all, your eyes, the surfaces of your eyes are just two dimensions. So to build a three-dimensional model out of that, you got to start processing the data right away. And then in some realms, especially judging other people or thinking about things we've done, you know, the processing gets a lot more elaborate. I mean, we tell these elaborate stories about ourselves and about other people. And this is, you know, a bad person and this is a good person. And we now know that which category you put these people into will shape all kinds of things that you think about them. It can trigger certain cognitive biases and so on. But you're right that bottom up, you mean starting with the raw sensory information. Yes. And by top down, you mean kind of the imposition of assumptions and constraints on the information that lead to coherent, in some cases, narratives 
Yeah, I, I would say the goal of a goal of mindfulness meditation is to move a little closer to the raw sensory input. I mean, I tell a story in the book about when I was a meditation retreat and there was construction going on. They were building a dorm at the retreat center. And this was considered kind of unfortunate because it meant there were these loud construction noises when you're trying to meditate. But through meditation, you can just reconceptualize the sound. I mean, if you start thinking about it in a different way, it becomes beautiful. You know, you don't have to think of it as this unwelcome interruption. That's the way we tend to think of construction noise, especially if we're trying to meditate. But you can do the exact opposite and think of it as beautiful. And that's what I did. And and that kind of thing is possible through meditation to, in a certain sense, bring a different story to the perception. Yeah. So it's really kind of seeing things as they are, not as you want them to be or as your prior expectations lead them to be. But isn't there some instances where it's like really a good thing to be oriented or biased in a certain way with people in general? Like, I'm just thinking like, you know, I've done some research lately that shows that people who tend to see the best in people, that's correlated with a lot of really positive outcomes in life. Is that really such a bad thing to have that bias that you actually like lead with there's going to be a strength in this person? No, I mean, I'd say a couple of things. First, there are all kinds of illusions that I'm fine with. I think within certain limits, it's fine for me to think that my daughters are more important than other kids. You know, not that that's morally true, but just that, you know, it's a reasonable way to structure society that you have these houses, they have these families in them. There's a certain efficiency. Everyone takes care of it. It it works. The system works. I'm not like trying to, you know, even though the idea that your children are special is in a certain sense an illusion that natural selection imparted to us. I'm not here to, you know, I'm not quite that big a revolutionary. Now, I will say you can go too far and you should, when you're judging other people's kids because of the way they've interacted with yours, you should strive to, you know, to attain something approaching objectivity that can be helpful. And you certainly should try to avoid building up intense ill will because somebody else's kid got some cheerleader slot. You know, there's this famous case in Texas where the woman plotted, I think, the murder of her daughter's cheerleader rival's mother. So anyways, it was going too far by any reckoning. There's that. Now, to, to get back to what you're saying, I would say thinking the best of people, I would say, first of all, if that's an illusion, in certain kinds of contexts, it could be a healthy one. But secondly, given the kinds of judgments we naturally make, in some cases, that may be moving you toward a more objective view. It may be that your bias would have been unduly negative, right? Because there's all kinds of things people can do that just set off negative judgment, Yeah. right? I mean, they can just be taking too long to order their coffee at Starbucks, right? And you start thinking, you know, if you're not careful, like what a jerk. You know, and when you think about it, that's pretty slim evidentiary grounds for concluding that someone's a jerk. And or they can say things because they're just not very diplomatic or they're just not thinking about the way about your perspective, whatever. There's all kinds of ways people can set off an unduly negative judgment. So it could be that, you know, the bias you're talking about is actually not a bias. On balance, it's moving us closer to a just kind of objective, non-judgmental view. I really like that. I really like that. I was just thinking about like you kind of talk about what would it be like to not judge anyone as good or bad or, you know, and, and just take all to be 100% category free. I mean, that I don't know if we really should aim for that. And it sounds like you're saying that you're not saying that's what we should necessarily aim for. But there are these filters we have on the world. You know, when you mention a lot of this, I tend to think of, have you read a lot of Abraham Maslow? No, I mean, I know about the hierarchy, but I haven't really read much written by him. I've read a lot of his personal writings, and he really believed that self-actualization, as he was calling it, which I think is just very similar to what you're talking about, or what the Buddhists are talking about with nirvana, that these self-actualizers no longer, these categories break down, and you actually get to a point, and I think that it can be taken too far, but, you know, sometimes like can evil be beautiful? Like he's like, if you look in a microscope, he has this article where he says, if you look in a microscope and you look at a cancer growing without any notion that it's cancer, it's actually quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a very controversial thing to say. I realize that for most of my listeners, but I think that there's a lot of wisdom there, you know, with things are just as they are. And then we as humans, you know, 
in, in a lot of cases, rightly so, if someone's running with you with an axe trying to kill you, it's not to your survival benefit to stand there and say, wow, there's something really beautiful about this situation right now. But nevertheless, I think there's some wisdom to what Maslow was saying that I think it dovetails with what you're saying, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say two things. First of all, a criticism of Buddhism is that carried too far, it could become a kind of a nihilism where you make no judgments at all. And right, there's evil is beautiful. And so I kind of have a super long footnote in the book about that, where I say that, you know, for practical purposes, that's just not a problem. I mean, almost nobody gets anywhere near the territory where that would be a serious question. And the people who do get so far beyond judgment that it becomes a serious question. I think it tends to be the case that they have so let go of their own selfish needs and the selfish nature of their judgments that it's not like they're going to go do a bunch of evil stuff just because they no longer judge, you know, conventionally judged bad things as bad. So anyway, I think that's not a big problem. And I do think it's true that, I mean, if you take the extreme case, when I'm on a meditation retreat, you know, I have a daily meditation practice, which is helpful. But when I go to like a one week silent meditation retreat, you know, there's an intensified version of, of like what meditation can do for you in principle. It's an interesting way to find out like what would it be like to be some monk who meditates for four hours a day or whatever every day. I mean, you actually meditate even more than that on a meditation retreat. And you certainly one of the first things I noticed is, wow, everything is beautiful. I mean, it was like I recount in the book when I on my first retreat, I came across I was in the woods. And I came across a weed. It's called a plantain weed. And when I had seen them in my yard, I thought they were horrific and tried to kill them. And I just realized, you know, it looked beautiful. And I realized there's no objective basis for saying this is ugly and the other stuff is nearby. It is beautiful. That is like a judgment that we have convinced ourselves of. It's not like a God's eye view, you know, and as a practical matter, you don't want people to go so far that they see so much beauty in a, in a mass murder or something that they don't punish them, obviously. But it can be liberating to see beauty in a lot of things where you hadn't seen beauty and to see more intense beauty in things where you had seen beauty. Yeah, yeah. That dovetails very nicely with that point. And, you know, of course, we need to be careful with taking that to the extreme. But there's just something really, I feel like really profound about this point, though, that when we pull back, you know, Maslow believed that when we pull back all of our evolutionary heritage, I mean, in a lot of ways, this is very consistent with what you're arguing in your book, that underneath all that is actually fundamental goodness, that goodness is actually probably our default, and that it's all these, you know, evolved judgments and biases and all the, mm -hmm. the kind of the internal drama that we go through in our lives that kind of take us away from being able to fully see that. And you say that, and you, you know, you talk about that a lot. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I would qualify it. I would say, if by default state, you mean the way the organisms were designed, in quotes, of course, designed by natural selection. I mean, I put it in quotes because natural selection is not a conscious process. But if by default, you mean the way we were designed by natural selection to operate, I wouldn't say the default state is good. What I would say is that through meditation, it is possible to, in a certain sense, defy natural selection's agenda and reach almost a deeper default state. I mean, you might, if you wanted to get metaphysical, you, you might say, well, maybe this is the default state of consciousness. You know, maybe through evolution, consciousness, I mean, presumably consciousness gets created by evolution, but maybe because of the rules of evolution, consciousness in the course of getting created gets kind of warped. And maybe there's a version of it, which you could think of as a default state, a very just calm, observant version of it that's not so attached to a self and the self's, you know, immediate agenda, a version of it that is much more benign. And that when that, I mean, I don't want to sound too weirdly metaphysical here, okay, because I, my, you know, consciousness is, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm, it's a whole I'm other a, topic. It's a whole other topic. I, but I do want to say, I don't think our default state as organisms created by natural selection is to be always good by any means. But, and in fact, you know, I'm trying to point in the book to some kinds of pernicious natural warpings of our perception, but it is possible to move yourself to a deeper state through meditation that is less afflicted by those unfortunate distortions. Yeah, that makes a lot and, of sense. Yeah. 
And, and I would say, you know, if you look at people who are said to be enlightened, I mean, if there is such a thing as true full on Buddhist enlightenment and people argue about this, you know, they are in a whole different realm in this regard. And you would expect that it's an extremely benign form of consciousness. Yeah, I didn't mean to default. I actually would like to take that back. You know, our default state may just be kind of neutrality. I mean, we have all of these, you know, if we talk, let's talk about Robert Kurzban's model of the mind for a second. We have all these modules, these different selves, and some of them evolved to have different goals than other goals, others of the self. So we actually have within all of us multiple personality disorder, right, in a way, because we have yeah. these competing drives and motives within us. And it seems like meditation is a good way of helping us become more harmonious and unified in that sense of self, even though there isn't a single sense of self. But I would kind of make the argument that your book is not just validating the Kurzban model. It's actually going beyond it. And I think this is what I've wanted to talk to you about for a while. In a lot of ways, I think your book could have been titled Why Evolutionary Psychology is Not Complete. Hmm. And that could have been an interesting framing of the book, an additional framing of it. It does suggest there is a perceiving self that is not the simply the sum of its parts in a way. It's not mm -hmm. simply like we are more than our evolution. We can be more than our evolutionary drives. We can have goals that I think truly transcend our biological imperatives. And I think your book actually makes that argument convincingly, even though that wasn't the stated argument of your book. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, that part of my point in the book is that Buddhist meditation, mindfulness meditation in particular, is a means of transcending uh, biological heritage. It is. Now, now, that doesn't mean, you know, as you know, I'm a big believer in evolutionary psychology as a model for understanding human behavior. But this is a discipline of, in some sense, transcendence. I mean, that word can mean a lot of things, but I certainly mean that you can defy natural selection's agenda in a certain sense. Yeah. You cannot behave as selfishly as natural selection might, quote, want you to. And that involves liberating yourself to at least some extent from the kind of emotional levers that natural selection uses to steer people towards serving its agenda. And there are all kinds of feelings ranging from lust to rage to much subtler feelings that, you know, are with us, I think, because in the past they helped you know, people get genes in the next generation. They are legacies of natural selection. And the process of liberating yourself from natural selection's agenda involves liberating yourself from the control of these feelings, because those are the levers that get you to serve natural selection's agenda. That doesn't mean you become a person without feelings, but the idea in mindfulness meditation is that you at least get more aware of feelings, take kind of a critical look at them, and decide at least whether there are certain feelings you just shouldn't buy into totally and shouldn't be uh, governed by. Yeah. I keep thinking of Keith Stanovich's book, the title, The Robot's Rebellion. You know, in a lot of ways, mindfulness allows us to be more aware of how much we're being controlled by forces that are deep within us. And we can, in a sense, rebel against them. Yeah. You just brought up feelings and illusions. I would love to talk a little about something you talk about in the book about, you say sometimes feelings are illusions. Now, how do we know when our feeling is an illusion and when it's not? Well, it's hard. I think evolutionary psychology helps us think about it. So you take something like fear or anxiety. And when you're in a fearful state, like say you're taking a hike, you know that the area is rattlesnake, infe rattlesnake infested. You know, anything you hear down by your feet, you're going to think for a moment, oh, maybe that's a snake. You might even look down and if it's a lizard, you'll actually see the lizard as a snake for a second. Literally think you see a snake. Now, it's plausible that that kind of error of perception is, is an adaptation. That's a designed in feature of natural selection because, you know, better safe than sorry. So false positives in life-threatening situations are better than a lot of uh, false negatives, where you fail to get out of the way of something that is in fact a snake. It's better to err on the side of caution. So that's a case where you might say natural selection designed a certain kind of delusion into us 
Because it was pragmatically valuable. It, it helped get genes. It helped preserve organisms and get genes into the next generation. Now, it may further be that in the natural environment, the problem gets exacerbated. And, and of course, you might say, well, that's, that's not a problem, false positives, because in fact, it did keep people safe. I mean, if you were to, you know, you yourself would rather err on the side of caution. Unfortunately, it means a lot of unpleasant fear, but that just seems to be the way we're built. So given the fact that caution is associated with fear, you know, you, you would choose to live with the excessive fear rather than risk being killed by a snake. But then you move to the modern environment and you take a feeling like anxiety, which according to evolutionary psychologists is natural in itself. You know, we uh, worrying that maybe your child who's wandered off may get, you know, killed or something leads you to go look, find the child and secure them. That part's natural. But then in a modern environment, various social anxieties get exacerbated and become less productive, right? So like, yes, it's natural to care what people think of us and to be anxious about it because what people thought of us was correlated with genetic proliferation. But what wasn't natural in the environment that we were designed for by natural selection is to suddenly find yourself giving, speaking to like 100 people you've never met. And, you know, that just doesn't happen in a hunter-gatherer village. So that's a case where social anxiety that is at its core natural gets exacerbated and becomes unproductive. I mean, again, to a certain point, it's productive. You should be worried enough about your talk that you get the talk done. But then once you're ready and you're having trouble sleeping the night before and you're, you know, in some cases, you know, people have illusions of visions of themselves, projectile vomiting, something they've never done while speaking, you know, people have phobias and so on. That's completely unproductive. And so I think that's a case where the feeling, you know, it's just the Darwinian paradigm is useful in distinguishing between these feelings that are in some sense natural, arguably useful, and the cases in which the feelings are, you know, in a sense, certain misbehaving by virtue of the fact that we live in a new kind of environment and are not productive in any sense of the word. So interesting. You know, look, I think there's a really important distinction here to be made between, and I try to make a distinction in my own writings, between evolutionary adaptive and personally constructive. They can be two different things. A lot of evolutionary psychologists talk about adaptiveness in the sense of what was adaptive amongst our ancestors. But, you know, I'll give you one domain which evolutionary psychologists talk about. So, you know, evolutionary psychologists love talking about mating. They love mating. And yeah. they're the only ones. I think, I think they talk about it a little too much, frankly. Yeah, but, that's what uh, I'm saying. I agree. Yeah. And this is someone who wrote a book called Meeting Intelligence Unleashed. But <laughs> we're just going to ignore that, that book, <laughs> book for a second. So evolutionary psychologists just love meeting a lot. They talk about why, how it's a good thing having a uh, bias that your mate value is higher than your actual mate value is. So there's a whole literature in evolutionary psychology on why it's adaptive, and I'm putting adaptive there in quotes, to have, to not see reality clearly. If you're a schlub, you know, uh, whatever that, you know, a schlub means, you know what I mean by schlub, and you think you're an Adonis, there's actually, that confidence will give you a little bit of a upper edge than, you know, if you really saw you, who you are, for what it's worth. Now, that's not the same thing as over, the, in the long run, constructive, right? Because ultimately, that's going to eventually catch up with you, right? Like eventually, you know, like it'll be better in the long run to actually genuinely become, maybe not Adonis, but to genuinely become a better person than you currently are in the long run. But, you know, you do see in the literature a lot about how they use the word adaptive in a lot of these senses. That, and they even show correlations between, I published this main intelligence scale showing that that kind of overconfidence is correlated yeah. with meeting outcomes. Yeah. Well, so. I remember, it kind of reminds me, I remember somebody once in the early days of evolutionary psychology arguing that premature ejaculation is not a problem because as long, you know, as long as you've gotten into the, you know, initiated the process, insemination will happen, right? Even if the woman's not gratified. But wait a second. I mean, you know, you're building a relationship. There's reason to care whether the woman is gratified, right? I mean, you know, it's just not enough to say. I agree. The, you know, the job has been done, that we got our genes in there, and now we're hoping for the best. You know, it's like that is a conflation between adaptive and personally useful. And, and the two do get conflated sometimes, you know, not by everyone, 
But yeah, it's a distinction. I mean, I, if anything, if I err, I probably err in the opposite direction. I mean, I'm out to defy natural selections agenda, you know, because like that. yeah, yeah, and that's the spirit of the book. Not unequivocally. I mean, again, you know, love of offspring and so on, you know, is, when kept in perspective is just a wonderful thing. But that said, I think we should be a little skeptical about the agenda of our designer because so often it executes its agenda in subtle ways. I mean, it does it by subtly warping perception in ways that can be very consequential and can start wars and huge feuds with friends and so on that are unnecessary. And I do think mindfulness meditation, I mean, I think the stereotype of meditation is in some ways misleading. People think, oh, you you think meditation can save the world? It'll suffuse us with uh, love and so on. It's not that so much. There are kinds of meditation devoted to that, actually, but mindfulness meditation isn't one of them. It's just more that you become more aware of how your feelings are pushing and pulling you. And when you decide that a feeling is not constructive, you can get a little distance from it and be less obedient to it. I really like that. I really like that. I want to return to something you said. You said you you kind of want to defy evolution. Are you equal opportunity with that, though? Because, like, you know, we have, there are so many positive aspects of humanity that also are evolved. I think evolution psychologists focus too much on the muck. But there are positive psychologists like Dr. Keltner who have put in evolutionary framework things like awe, things like love, things Mm -hmm. like, you know, there are so many positive aspects that also, they're still technically evolution's agenda. So do you only want to rebel against evolution's agenda when it's the muck? Or do you want to full stop rebel against evolution? No, I only want to rebel when it's the muck. Okay, I want to clarify Now, I may focus on the muck because that's the part that needs focus, right? I do think meditation can actually accentuate positive feelings like the apprehension of beauty and compassion. Even when you're not like doing one at like meta, like loving kindness meditation, I just think garden variety mindfulness meditation can make you more compassionate toward people. And I'm all for that. I'm for, I guess I would say I'm for not just, yes, accepting the positive legacies that natural selection has left us with. And and there are many. I'm for accentuating them if you can. And, you know, I know Dacker, I think himself is a meditator. I, I know he's very, you know, plugged into the meditation community there in Northern California. He's a Berkeley, but I'm a, I'm a big fan of his work. I actually heard him on the radio last night as it happens. Yeah. Oh, cool. What was that? We'll put a link on the podcast for that. Do you know what station? I think it was actually a local Philadelphia NPR show. He was called Radio Times. Oh, um, yeah. Cool. With, with Marty? Yeah. yeah. I think he was on that and they were uh, rebroadcasting at night. It was about political stuff and his book on, I think it's called The Power Paradox. But it's about yeah. how having power changes people, sometimes not for the better. Yeah, you know, and how most people who get changed by power weren't necessarily power hungry before. You know, how it's kind of a part of human nature to kind of change us. If somebody hands it to you, you take it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hasn't happened to me yet, but if they do, you know, I'm available. If somebody <laughs> wants to hand me power. I love your sense of humor. I love it. So there's a very profound point in your book about how the more that we strengthen, the more that we engage or, in a sense, don't rebel against a module, the stronger its power becomes. Like, in terms of self-help development, like, it is a more powerful concept as far as I'm concerned as reading. I'm not going to call out anyone, but it's a very important way. And to me, it dovetails with the expression, you know, feeding the wolf. Right. The more we feed the wolf, the stronger the wolf becomes. So, it seems like, and I will say, as someone who's trying to practice meditation myself, the best description I can give of how I feel when I've consistently meditated is I feel like I'm not possessed anymore by anything. Like nothing is possessing me. Right. I think that's the best way I can describe it. I don't know if that dovetails with your experiences at all, but it feels good because I feel greater freedom to, I don't know, to just, I guess, choose whatever I want to do. So, Is it that meditation, linking that to this idea of the wolf, is it because what I'm doing is I'm meditating on some of these modules that I don't want to indulge in, but I'm not inhibiting it. I'm actually facing it head on in a way. Right. 
And then that, therefore, by facing it head on, it's quieting. Is that what is it? Is that what's going on? I think basically, yes. So I think, first of all, what you said is true that, you know, if you think of the mind as having these little specialized modules, like one of them wants you to eat. And if you see junk food, it, you know, gets you all excited. And another one wants you to impress someone or another one wants you to do something else. And there's these specialized functions. And some of them are, yeah, can get out of control, like hunger. First of all, it's, it's true. It's a, it's a pretty conventionally observed fact that appetites that are indulged grow stronger. That's what addiction is. I mean, if you're addicted to a chemical that, of course, is not something natural selection anticipated, but it's a feature of the modern environment that short circuits the reward system, you know, a gratifying chemical like nicotine or something. It's well known that if you feed the appetite, the appetite gets stronger. I think I'd say two things. One, you're right that in the book, I kind of explain why I think natural selection would have designed things that that way, such that modules that win in the competition to dominate your consciousness over other modules get more power. But the other thing I'd say is, so yes, in a sense, defying them makes them less strong. But as you did suggest there toward the end, defying can be a slightly misleading Right. You're not really defying it. Because you're not pushing them away. And in fact, to look at this mindfulness therapy that has been effective with nicotine addiction, it's not that they ask you to push the urge to have a cigarette out of your mind. On the contrary, they say, imagine having a cigarette. Think about that. Close your eyes. Examine the feeling. Don't try to get rid of the urge. Look at the urge. Feel the urge. And the fact that you entertain the urge so long without the urge succeeding and getting you to actually smoke a cigarette slowly gives you some distance from it and it doesn't give the module the positive reinforcement right yeah. so the module like didn't win that time and that seems to kind of disempower the module so it isn't defiance in the sense of pushing away yes it it is ultimately defiance but it is a subtle kind of thwarting yeah, so you just reminded me of a beautiful passage in one of Rollo May's books. Are you familiar with the humanistic psychologist Rollo May? I'm familiar with the name, but he, that's about it. He has this vignette. He talks about a clinical patient who just had this fear, a rational fear that every time he's near a, a window, that he's just going to just compulsively jump out of it and kill himself. And mm-hmm. it really has taken over his life and it has really possessed him. And the psychotherapist one day, you know, they're walking past a window and he's panicking and the psychotherapist opens the window and says, go, just jump. And the guy says, in that moment, he was cured. Huh. <laughs> he no longer had that fear ever again. <laughs> That's funny because it had the opportunity yeah. to get what it wanted. And it. <laughs> and he, really, he realized, you know what? I actually don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dangerous thing to do uh, for, the, for a psychotherapist. Well, I, but, know, I know, right? You know. You can imagine a lawsuit from the family, but I'm glad things worked out. Yeah, I'm really glad things worked out too. And I'm also going to link it to something Carl Rogers says. Most of his patients have a fear of unleashing the beast within. There's a kind of this fear with a lot of these patients that they'll that somehow if they are their real selves, it'll be out of control and they'll do horrible, horrible things. But he writes about in his books that like, you know, the reality of the matter is that whenever any of these patients do the most horrible thing they think they would do or they get that opportunity or whatever, that actually they're not really a beast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Their nature is not really what they most fear. Hmm. I'm linking all these things together on the spot in Im- improvisational format. but I uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking a couple of things. One is that the modern environment makes it easy to be a beast. Mm. I mean, in the sense of indulging your appetite. So there's like pornography online. There are drugs that will gratify your reward system without you like doing any work. I mean, we were designed to have to work, you know, to get like a boost in self-esteem. We were designed to have to impress people, you know, by that was the the idea behind the way natural selection created the brain. So, I mean, I don't know what I'm thinking exactly. I, I guess my view of human nature is that people can behave like beasts. I guess I'm a little less sunny than Carl Rogers. <laughs> oh, a lot of people were. And that was yeah, one of the lot, criticism. Of That's one of the criticisms of Carl Rogers. He was too optimistic about human nature. Yeah, perhaps. I'm probably in that camp. But I think what 
when I use the word beast, I don't, you know, something truly, truly horrible, like you're going to kill lots, you know, like you're going to lose your mind and go insane. I'm saying like our greatest, deepest fears is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think, you know, just decency and friendliness and generosity are very deeply embedded things and they manifest themselves in all kinds of situations. And there is nothing that gives me more pleasure than giving directions to somebody who asks for directions. Yeah. And that's an interesting, and I think there are a lot of people like that. And that's an interesting thing because there's no payoff for you. Now, if you ask, well, why would natural selection design us to do something there's no payoff for? Well, maybe because, you know, in the environment of revolution, there were basically no such thing as strangers. So, you know, it's like you, you help people and it may well come back to benefit you that they will help you later. Who knows? But it doesn't matter. I mean, I, you know, for practical purposes, there's a very robust, positive side of human nature for us to build on. Yeah. And if I focus in the book on distortions of perception and their attendant moral consequences, it's just because I do want to build on the positive stuff we have to build on and avoid the most calamitous outcomes you can imagine for the species. Wow, you sound like a positive psychologist. Well, you know, I'm... I'm a fan of a lot of the work in positive psychology, as you know. Yeah, no, of course. So I know I want to be mindful of your time. I have just a couple more questions. I really interest. I'm really, really fascinated with this notion of non-self and what the Buddha really meant. You have the section like hearsay. Tell me what your interpretation is, and can you link that to this idea of specialness? Because I've been thinking a lot lately about like. And you still have an identity. Like identity seems to be such a strong part of self. Are you saying we should get rid of an identity entirely? So can you yeah, kind of tie all that together in a way? Okay. Well, first of all, as for what the Buddha meant by not self, I think the, the answer is we don't know. You know, he didn't write anything down. Nothing was written down for quite a while. I think Buddhist thought probably developed for some time before much was written down. So there was a lot of oral transmission. I will say, if you look at, you know, there is this famous Buddhist doctrine, the self doesn't exist. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you look at the Buddha's earliest, what is said to be the Buddha's earliest discourse on the not self, it's not clear, oddly, that he's actually denying the existence of his of the self. I mean, that's a pretty plausible reading. But there are people who point out, he never quite says that. What he does do is he goes through... The various parts of like the mind and the elements of human experience, you know, Buddhist psychology kind of divides human experience into five categories like, you know, perceptions, feelings, so-called mental formations, consciousness, the physical being. And he goes through them all and says, does it make sense to call this self? Like he says, you know, isn't it the case that your feelings you don't really control them and they can cause you affliction, right? They can be unpleasant and you don't control them. So is that something we should call the self? And the monks who are listening say, no, you're right, we shouldn't. And he goes through the whole gamut of every element of human experience and, and argues that, you know, you're not controlling them. They don't, for various reasons, not to consider themselves. You could read it as just therapeutic advice. In other words, if you can't, control these things, and they're causing you suffering, disown them. And interestingly, mindfulness meditation helps you do that. So like you look at anxiety or something, some feeling that's giving you trouble, you get a little distance from it, it actually loosens its grip on you. It's less a part of yourself. And so you could just view that discourse on the not-self as pragmatic therapeutic device. Now, most interpreters don't. Most think that it's no, it's the assertion, it's a metaphysical doctrine, the self, whatever he meant by that does not exist. That's the majority view. And I think it's certainly the case that as Buddhist doctrine developed, that became a Buddhist doctrine. There's no doubt about that. It became a Buddhist doctrine fairly early on. At the same time, one reason I wanted to spend some time looking at that discourse in my book is I want to emphasize to people, look, Leave aside whether you think the self exists. I mean, there certainly are lots of reasons for modern psychology to think we overstate the extent to which there is some kind of solid, powerful CEO type self in our conscious mind. Yeah, that's true. But you can also just think of it as like a meditative guidance, like parts of your experience that are giving you trouble. You don't have to think of them as part of yourself. Those are the beginning steps on the path of mindfulness meditation. 
Now, if, if they do lead you all the way, if you become a super committed meditator and say, well, I have had the full on not self experience as some meditators do, and that can be a profound experience. I haven't had the full on version of it, but in retreats, I've gotten a little taste of elements of it, you might say. That's all fine. But even if you don't go that far, I think the not self doctrine can be useful just in reframing, you know, the relationship you can choose to have with problematic feelings. I like that. But what about the relationship you have to your identity? I mean, one of the scariest things that dementia patients report is that their sense of identity is evaporating. I mean, it's a scary thing for them. And I'm not convinced that we all strive for that level of complete non-attachment. We want to feel like we exist in this world as well. Yeah. I mean, I will say, you know, I've talked to some people who are very adept meditators, and I talk about them in the book, and they seem to me like they can make plausible claims of having realized not self, of having experientially apprehended and and even in an ongoing way, and also to have the experience of so-called emptiness, which isn't actually what it sounds like. Well, emptiness actually refers largely to how you perceive the world. It means not attributing essence to the things you see, gotcha. not having the feeling of essence, essence of tree, essence of like bad person, essence of weed, essence of flower so much, you know, it's, and by the way, people who have that perception, the reason emptiness is a misleading term is they're like, it's all beautiful. You know, they're not like, oh, it's all hollow and meaningless. They're all, oh, it's luminous. It exudes this positive energy. These people who have that feeling. Anyway, if they also report having the not self experience, the people I've talked to, they are not freaked out. These are happy campers. And, you know, they they have trouble articulating to me exactly what it's like. But, you know, there are some unifying themes in the things that they say. I'm convinced that there are these thresholds that meditation can move you beyond that are extremely interesting and may well move you closer to the truth. Yes, that's my sense and may well liberate you in a really thoroughgoing way from the kinds of kind of perceptual constraints and motivational constraints and interpretive constraints that natural selection has led the mind to kind of realize under normal conditions. I think that's a good point. And this is what I think. I think that it may seem incredibly paradoxical, but at the end of the day, the more that we reach that state that the Buddhists are talking about, the stronger our self becomes actually, not the weaker. So actually the stronger our unity and sense of self, because all these other things that are possessing us and pulling us are not really, you know, there are things that are that are, have biological imperatives, but the more that we can kind of get rid of that, I think we actually end up with the strongest sense of self. Well, and the more sense of continuity there is between yourself and the world out there, including other people. Unity, yes. Integration. Right. And, and I've had, on retreat, I've had the experience of like, whoa, like, you know, five days into a retreat, I feel a tingling in my foot. I hear a bird singing. It seems like the bird is no less a part of me. The, the song is emanating from a place that's no less a part of me than the tingling of the foot. In the book, I kind of defend, I kind of say, you know, there's a perspective from which you could make the case and argue that our very tightly bounded self is, is naturally, that's the conception of self-natural selection would impart, of course, because it's the container of our genes. So naturally, you want natural selection would build us to think that, yeah, the confines of our body are very special. Everything outside of it is much less important because that's how you get genes into the next generation is by thinking that way. But that doesn't mean that that's like the metaphysical truth. And in fact, it's kind of hard to defend it as the moral truth. So, you know, I think some of these deep apprehensions that I've had fleeting glimpses of that other meditators experience on a more ongoing basis may be closer to moral truth. And even in some sense to metaphysical truth, although I want to be careful with that word because I don't mean it in a super new agey way. I just mean it in the philosophical sense. I think there's reason to take these claims seriously. And I agree with you that it certainly leads to a more productive, well, a more productive in the grand scheme of things self, right? Yes. It's just so interesting. You know, you kind of, you once you really practice this and you really get closer and closer to the state, you find that truth, beauty, and goodness seem to be more integrated within the person and more available to the person. And I think that's really interesting. And I think, I mean, remember, the Buddhist claim is seeing things more clearly leads to more happiness and leads you closer to moral truth as well, leads you to be a better person. 
I think on top of that, I think that is largely the case. But I think on top of that, in my experience, the apprehension of beauty deepens as you go down the meditative path, especially if you're like on retreat and you're really getting in the zone. And I think it's something to be grateful for. I mean, there are a lot of unfortunate things about the human condition, but if the universe, the nature of reality is such that pursuing truth also leads you toward moral truth, happiness, and a deep appreciation of beauty, well, you know, things could be worse than that, right? Uh, I mean, there's a certain efficiency to the pursuit. It's nice. It's very nice. I'd like to end on that point because I think that'd be enough motivation for people to uh, get their butt on the uh, cushion. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, quit, quit fooling around. Get busy. <laughs> well, all the best to you and your new book, Bob. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Well, thank you, Scott. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate the trouble you've taken to understand the argument I'm making. Absolutely. I think it's a really worthy argument. Thank you so much for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking as I did. If something you heard today stimulated you in some way, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.